Please take your Bibles with me and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm excited for the second half of this message. I was excited for the first half of this message, but preaching the first half got me really excited for the second half. We've talked about the fact that this message is directed toward ministers, and yet it's so applicable to our lives. It's so applicable to us as individuals. It's so applicable to us and our families. And then it's so applicable to the needs that we have in this church. It's so applicable to what we are as a body of believers, to why we're here in Buffalo, to what we're doing, and to where we're going. And so it's been exciting studying through this. This Corinthian series, as I've been studying through it now for several months, has really, in a manner of speaking, been a heartbreak. It's been a, a little bit frustrating, along with it being somewhat invigorating and exciting. And it's been frustrating and a bit of a heartbreak, particularly because there's so much of the modern American church in the problems found in Corinth. There is so much carnality in the church today. And it really is heartbreaking. Because one of the problems with carnality is because we are quenching the Holy Spirit of God, and because we are grieving the Holy Spirit of God, and because we're thinking on a physical plane and we're, applying, uh, we're, we're attempting to apply spiritual concepts while we're thinking in a physical or in a carnal way, we don't even see the problem. We don't even recognize that it's there because we're not hearing the Spirit because we're thinking carnally. And it truly is a heartbreak to see the direction that the American church has gone. And as we think of the church at large, how many people are blinded by their own carnality into worshiping God in a manner that is just not fit, not worthy. And I pray that as we're looking at this message, as we considered the first three points this evening, as we continue to consider the points Uh, excuse me, this morning, as we continue to consider the points this evening, that we would be determined not to be carnal believers. Rather, we would be determined to live lives defined by the mind of Christ. Spiritual. Dedicated towards those things of God. And that truly is my prayer. That the Holy Spirit would guide and direct us into that truth as we look into the Word of God this evening. Last time we were together, we saw three of the six warnings given specifically to ministers in regard to their ministries. We saw, number one, ministers don't forsake the church's one foundation. That foundation being Jesus Christ. Don't forsake Jesus Christ in your church. If you forsake the Gospel of Jesus Christ if you forsake Jesus Christ as the foundation upon which your church rests, then you have forsaken the church. There is no church where there is no foundation of Jesus Christ. The second warning was ministers don't ignore what you build upon that foundation. The Bible teaches us very clearly that we are building, we are being built as a church upon the foundation of our faith. And the church is being built, and we'll see this evening that it is appropriate for us here to speak about this corporately. Yes, we are being built as individuals, but it is very appropriate for us to speak in the corporate sense. That the church is being built by ministers and that each one of you would be, as it were, a stone in that building. 
And there is gold, there's silver, there's precious stones, there's wood, there's hay, and there's stubble. But we can't ignore what's built upon that foundation. It matters because the third point, there will be judgment upon the ministry. Ministers, don't forget there will be judgment upon the ministry. That the ministry that God has given to each one of us as ministers, the stewardship that God has given to each one of us, whether it's in the church or in our family or even the stewardship over ourselves, will be reckoned to us again. And we even see the parable of the stewards and their talents. One steward is given one talent, one is given five, one is given ten. Well, perhaps the minister in the church of God has been given more spiritual talents, and I don't mean that as abilities, I mean uh, in, in the idea of he's been given more responsibility over things, but when the master comes, there's a greater expectation of multiplication. There's a greater expectation of spiritual value given to the one that's been given spiritual responsibility. And so to whatever degree we have been given responsibility, whether you're just responsible spiritually for yourself, whether you're responsible spiritually for a family, whether you're responsible spiritually for a church, whatever the case may be, God is going to hold us accountable. That was the third warning. Let's look at warnings 4 through 6 this evening. Mike summed them up a little bit earlier as he was leading into one of the songs. We'll pick up in verse 16 for our final three points this evening of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Fourth warning this evening, ministers, don't overlook the destruction of the destroyer. Don't overlook the destruction of the destroyer. Let's start back in verse 12 again for context. Paul saying, Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. We said that that was the day of the Lord or the second coming of Christ. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Before I move on, let me just mention something I skipped this morning. Perhaps my message seemed a little bit negative, and now that I'm thinking about it, perhaps it was. But you know, before we get to verse 15, where it speaks of the works being burned for the minister that is not faithful, it says in verse 14 that the minister that that has his work abide, that minister will be reckoned. It will be rewarded. He will receive a reward for that which abides. And so while, yes, there is this warning, and the context of this passage is warning, let's not forget the reality that to the degree that you are willing to set aside the things of this world, to set aside carnality, and to pursue that which is spiritual, to pursue that which is godly, the degree to which you are willing to pursue God, there's a reward. There's a reward waiting for you to the degree that you lead your family into godliness. There's a reward waiting for the ministers of God who lead their church into godliness. There will be reward. But don't overlook as well the destruction of the destroyer. We come back to the the warnings. Look at verse 16. Paul says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. 
In verse 16, Paul expounds upon the reality of the church as comprised of born-again believers. And he tells them, ye, plural, you are the temple of God. And the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Now, the New Testament regularly uses this analogy of a temple or a house to describe God's people, both in an individual and in a corporate sense. However, we do see it used more in a corporate sense then we see it in the individual sense. It's interesting. This morning we read in Ephesians chapter 2, that was by design, uh, and we read about this corporate idea of God building the building of Christ and it's to be fitly framed together. I use that analogy all the time. But this evening in Hebrews chapter 3 in our scripture reading, we saw it as well. The idea of a house being built and Christ being the one that builds His house, being faithful in His house. And we are that house. And so we see the individual in the corporate sense. Individually, we see verses such as 1 Corinthians 6.19. Paul says, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. So Paul warns them in 1 Corinthians 6, which we'll hit in a few weeks, that our bodies are the temple of God, that we are not our own because we have the Holy Spirit literally indwelling us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. So Paul speaks of this house, this temple of God, which will be dissolved. And he says, if it were dissolved, we know that we have one in heaven. We have a resurrected body that is awaiting us one day. Speaking of an individual's body being the house of God. But we also see it quite regularly as a corporate application. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, only one chapter after um, that last verse we read. Paul says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And in this warning, he's warning the church against idolatry. It's in a corporate sense. Ephesians chapter 2, that's what we read this morning. He said that in Christ, all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Very clearly there, the house of God is referenced in a plural sense. That we as the church of God are the house of God. In Hebrews chapter 3, this is referenced in verses 4 through 6. That's what we just read in our scripture reading. For every house is builded by some man, but he that buildeth all things is God. Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. We are the house of God. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Again, we see the house of God in a corporate sense. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built upon a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. There we see uh, Peter describing each one of us as a lively stone. 
as a stone that is alive in Christ and we're being built upon the foundation of Christ. We're being built up into the house of God. And then 1 Peter 4.17. Uh, Peter's warning here and he says, For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? That could mean the household of God is in the family of God, but we see plenty of, of scriptures throughout the New Testament speaking of us as the house of God, the building of God, to know that the church is indeed God's house. Judgment will begin at the church. Now, as we look at the passage this evening, I've mentioned already that I believe we're looking at this passage and it is giving us the idea of a corporate sense. That as Paul is warning us or, and telling us that we are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwelleth in us, if any man defile a temple, he's speaking in a corporate sense. Now certainly we are indwelled as individuals. But the warning is to the church. Paul is instructing ministers of the church. He is instructing about the church. And there is little doubt in my mind that he is bringing this analogy through to its conclusion, speaking of the corporate entity. Now, why might Pastor Wickler be wrong? There is a reason why Pastor Wickler might be wrong in this. And the reason is because as we continue in this passage, after this verse of warning in verses 16 and 17, the verses do take a decided turn toward individuals. Whereas Paul has been speaking to ministers and warning them about the building of the house of God in, the, the, in verses 18 and 19, as Paul turns a warning unto the church and into the individuals in the church, things become a little more individual. So the question is, when did Paul transition from speaking about the church at large to the individuals? Was it in verse 15 and 16? Excuse me, verse 16, or was it in verse 18, 19? Somewhere around there. And that's a question that can be left up to various interpretations whereby we can say, well, Pastor Wickler, you might be wrong. He may be speaking in an individual sense. If you want to say that, that's fine. But as I'm preaching this message, I'm going to be referencing these two verses, this warning, in a corporate sense. That Paul is warning the ministers in regard to the church, the ministry that they have built, either wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones. And so Paul's warning, as I understand it, is as follows. We, the church, are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in us as individuals and works through us as a body. Why is it so important that you're a part of a local church? Because God works through His church. God works through us as a body of believers. Can God work through us as individuals? Most certainly He has, but how is He ordained in this age for His people to work? Through the church. If ministers are building upon the foundation of the local church, wood, hay, and stubble, then the temple of the living God is under active defilement. And Paul's warning is that God will destroy the man who would actively defile the temple. Notice he says that ye are the temple of God, ye are the, and, the, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. He says, and if any man defileth the temple of God, if there is a man who is building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ wood, hay, and stubble, 
then he is defiling the temple of God that is being erected on top of the foundation of Jesus Christ. If any man, if any minister would dare do such a thing, the Scriptures say, him shall God destroy. And why? Because the temple of God is holy. The temple of God is set apart and Paul says, you are that temple. And so if any man would defile that temple, if one man, the minister, would defile the temple, he's going to be destroyed. Paul's warning is that God will destroy him. The church, as described by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, is the pillar and the ground of the truth. God has ordained this body of believers, the local church, as the very physical representation of the body of Christ to be the pillar and the ground of truth in Buffalo, Minnesota. As such, God has set us apart. He has made us holy. He has designated us for the work and He has set us apart to be a pure people, to be a distinct people, and to be a holy people. The church at Corinth was a church set apart as well. They were the church of God in Corinth, the designated representatives of the doctrines of God upon this earth. And as ministers of the church built upon that foundation, wood, hay, and stubble, that church of God began to become defiled, to become weak, And what happens to a structure? If if we had built this church, the actual physical building, and we had laid the foundation, and it was a solid foundation of of, uh, all of the elements, the, the concrete and the rebar, and all of those things that would go into making a sure foundation. And then your pastor decided... You, you guys started bringing in the four buys and the two buys and the concrete blocks and all of these things. And I said, you know, there's a pile of sticks out back. Let's just start piling those up. I mean, I've seen beavers do it and they seem to do a pretty good job of it. So let's just start piling sticks up and we'll kind of throw some, some dry leaves over the top of it and we'll be okay here. And so maybe for the first week things are looking good and then the carpenter ants start to find their way into the wood and, and the wind is blowing and the wood is becoming brittle with the sun and, and all of the elements are, are hitting that, those, those sticks and that building is going to begin to weaken. It's going to begin to decay. And as it becomes weakened, as it becomes defiled, if you were, what's going to happen to that building? It's going to collapse. It's going to collapse on top of itself. Now the foundation may stand sure, but the building itself is going to collapse. When I was in China several years ago on a missions trip, I gained a new appreciation for how things are built in the United States. Now I'm not a big fan of government oversight, but OSHA has a good thing going here in the United States. When we were over there, even them building the buildings. They were using bamboo scaffolding, uh, story after story after story, and they were flying all over the scaffolding and up these ladders, bamboo, and they were tied together and all sorts of things. And, and it was very nerve-wracking simply to watch them build the building, but then to see how they were building the building was very nerve-wracking as well. 
And I don't know if you've ever watched the news after a big earthquake in China or uh, in South America or, or in very, various countries where they don't have our sorts of building standards. But generally speaking, when there's great earthquakes in these countries, many, many people die. Many more people die in a country like that than they would in the United States. And it's not necessarily because people were walking down the street and the earth opened and they all fell in. It's because they were in a building and when the earthquake came, all the buildings in the area came crashing down. And they did so because they weren't well built. Poor workmanship, poor materials, and what happens? The building falls and it is destroyed. Now, the warning in this passage is not about the church being destroyed, it's about the minister being destroyed. Whosoever would defile the temple of God, he will be destroyed. And let me point out to you, this is an interesting um, element of this verse. In verse 17, I don't know if you write in your Bible, but if you do, mark the word defile and mark the word destroy. Those two words are the exact same word in the Greek. The same word. Same everything about the word. It's the same word in the Greek. If any man would defile the temple, would destroy the temple of God, he's going to be destroyed by God. And so God counts the man who is building the church with wood, hay, and stubble as a man that is destroying the temple of God. And the Bible says that man will be destroyed by God. However, the fate of the church whose minister is building with wood, hay, and stubble, will be destruction as well. The church will dissolve. Will the physical structure dissolve? Probably not. Will the people necessarily dissipate? Possibly not. But the spiritual effectiveness, the potency, the testimony of the ministry will be destroyed if carnality is what is being built upon the church. The day is rapidly approaching when the Western church will crumble. Unless there be a revival in this land among God's people, the churches in this country which thrive upon carnality will come crashing down. The entire framework of wood, of hay, and of stubble will collapse under the weight of its own inability to carry the doctrines of the Word of God. How will this collapse come? Well, it may come through judgment. It may come through compromise. It may come through persecution. It may come through some unforeseen method. But, make no mistake, as ministers build upon a foundation, wood, hay, and stubble, there is no good end for that church unless there is repentance and correction. And it is our duty at Legacy Baptist Church not to be one of those churches. It is our duty not to be a church that's built with wood, hay, and stubble. Now, this is in part, in large part, your pastor's responsibility. I am going to stand before God one day and I am going to answer to God for how this church was built. That's, that's a scary thing. That is an intimidating thing. I will answer to God for how this church was built. But we have the opportunity as the body of Christ 
particularly at this time in our ministry, to be discerning, to be vigilant as to the direction our church is going, as to how the very bottom of that building laying upon the foundation of Jesus Christ is being built. And let's be sure that as we do so, we are building a strong building, one of of gold, of silver, and of precious stones. Ministers, Paul says, number one, don't forsake the church's one foundation. Number two, don't ignore what you build upon that foundation. Number three, don't forget the judgment upon your ministry. Number four, don't overlook the destruction of the destroyer, the one who would destroy. Number five, don't allow worldly wisdom to guide the church. Don't allow worldly wisdom to guide the church. This goes right along with the idea of wood, hay, and stubble. But Paul gets a little more particular here in verses 18-20. through 20. Look at it with me. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. The conclusion to Paul's warning on a corporate level is found in these verses, in verses 18-20. through Uh, He begins by saying, don't let any man deceive himself. This word deceive is only used five times in our New Testament in the Greek. And it's only used in extremely serious cases. The word is used to describe the, those in an unbelieving state in Romans chapter 7, verse 11. It is the word that's used by Paul to describe Satan deceiving Eve in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3. And so as Paul is using this word here, let no man deceive himself. Don't be deceived and don't deceive yourself. What is it that a man, how, how is it that a man could be deceiving himself in the church? What is this deception that could come upon a man? Look at the end of verse 18. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. The deception is the wisdom of this world. Paul warns, if any minister in the church appears to be wise in this world, appears to be well-versed in worldly wisdom, seeking to bring that worldly wisdom into the church or to use worldly wisdom to guide his church or to build his church, then he needs to do something quick. And what he needs to do is he needs to become a fool to the world so that he can become wise unto God. And that is the warning. Let no man deceive himself. There's a philosophy of ministry today that states that ministers must use the world to relate to their congregation. We talked about it this morning in Sunday school. We talked about it uh, in the main service as well. The idea of redeeming the world and bringing the things of the world into the church and giving them a spiritual twist, a spiritual spin, and using those elements of the world. To do so is in direct contradiction to what Paul is speaking here. Now, we know what he speaks of when he speaks of the world. We've talked about it before, but let's clarify. When Paul uses this term, the world, in contrast to that which is of God, in contrast to that which is spiritual, he's speaking of Satan's system. God has erected a system, and he's working that system out through believers, known as the kingdom of God. 
And the kingdom of God will not be ushered in by believers. The believers will be raptured out of the church. God will have His seven years of tribulation where He chastens Israel back to Himself. He will return. Israel will return to its Messiah. We will return with Him and that will usher in the millennial reign, the millennial kingdom, God's kingdom upon this earth. However, Satan is building a counterfeit kingdom. And when Paul warns against the things of the world, when he is warning against the world, he's not warning against necessarily all of the things in the world such as chairs and trees and microphones. Nor is he warning necessarily against the things that we have to do in the world such as work to earn money, such as drive automobiles, such as go play basketball on the weekend, whatever. That's not what he's warning about. He's warning against the satanic world system and those elements of our culture, of our society, of individuals, and of this world as a whole, now that we are... Um, our, our society is thinking on a global scale, we can actually use that word world in its context. He is warning us against those elements of this world that are geared toward the satanic system. That's the warning. And so he says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seem to be wise in this world, let him become a fool. See, Paul says just the opposite about the church of God. It's not that ministers are responsible to learn about the world, to understand the world, and then to bring the world into the church, or to utilize the world to help connect to the church, or anything of the sort. He says the, the wisdom of the world has no business in the church. Worldly programs have no business in the church. Worldly movies have no business in the church. Worldly video games have no business in the church. Worldly sporting events have no business in the church. Worldly philosophies have no business in the church. Worldly business practices have no business, no pun intended, in the church. And if ministers are actively bringing these elements of worldly wisdom into the church... Paul tells them they're bringing in wood, hay, and stubble. And they will be judged by God. And the church had better watch out too. Because their temple is being defiled. And a defiled temple will not stand. And so Paul links that parenthetical, verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 through 2.16, where he taught about the differences between worldly and spiritual wisdom to this exhortation against carnality right here. Look at verses 19 and 20. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. Paul quotes two passages in this, the, these verses. Two Old Testament scriptures. The first one he quotes is from Job chapter 5, verse 13. He's quoting Eliphaz the Temanite. This would be Eliphaz's first exhortation to Job, where Eliphaz says in verse 13 of Job 5, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the froward is carried headlong. We went through Job, and as we went through Job, we recognized that many of the things the men said were accurate, they just didn't apply properly to Job. 
or many of the things they said were accurate. However, they were looking at them through a self-righteous lens. And so here we see Paul validating the words of Eliphaz the Temanite that he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. That these men who think that they're so smart, who think that they're so wise, who think that they have it all together, God proves them through His Word to be foolish. The second passage he quotes is in Psalm 94, verse 11, which says, The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. That word vanity meaning emptiness. That the thoughts of man are emptiness. Now that doesn't mean that everything a man concocts in his, in his mind is useless, is empty. But the, the philosophies of man, the direction that man's heart and mind has a tendency to go as it drifts toward the world, because why? We are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Because of that reality of our state, our natural state, our unregenerate state, our carnal state, because we are carnal in our natural state, The thoughts of man, those things that we would be naturally predisposed to think upon and to go toward in our philosophy and in our thinking, is vanity, it's emptiness. I trust you can bridge the gap between Paul's warning and today's church. The Western world stands at the edge of oblivion. Apostasy is pervasive. Ignorance is commonplace. The Western church is almost fully devoted to the wisdom of this world. The Western church has given itself to fads, to catchphrases, any idea that will get people into its seats and keep people there. It's collecting wood, hay, and stubble. It's almost defined by wood, hay, and stubble. But by God's grace, there is a remnant. And by God's grace, Legacy Baptist Church will be a part of that remnant. And by God's grace... We will stand with those who are a part of the remnant around the world against the world's system and maintain the distinctions of God's Word. By God's grace, we will stand not upon the world's wisdom, but upon God's wisdom. We will declare not the wisdom of men, but the wisdom of God. And as we do so, we will be fitly framed together until building for God. One more point this evening. Ministers, don't forsake the church's one foundation. Don't ignore what you build upon that foundation. Don't forget the judgment upon your ministry. Don't overlook the judgment of the destroyer or the destruction of the destroyer. Don't allow worldly wisdom to guide the church. Sixth and finally, we're turning away from the ministers and we're now exhorting the church. Church, don't glory in the ministry and the men of the ministry. Glory in God alone. Don't glory in the men of the ministry. Glory in God alone. Look at verses 21 to 23. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and ye are Christ's and Christ is God's. The final warning takes on a far more individual tone than that of the previous statements. It is a summary statement of nearly the entire rebuke beginning in chapter 1, verse 14. And the warning is this. Ministers can avoid being deceived by pinpointing the wisdom of this world and keeping it out of the church. The church can avoid being deceived by resting their loyalties upon the Word of God rather than upon the minister of God. Now, you at Legacy Baptist Church have heard this warning before. 
but we'll say it again in just a moment. However, as we continue in the passage for just a moment, what we understand here is that Paul is saying, look, Paul, I am a minister. I'm the minister by whom you believed. Apollos is a minister. Cephas is a minister. Those men that are in the church of Corinth now, they are ministers. And we don't place our faith in those ministries. We place our faith in the Word of God as it is taught by the ministers. And so I exhort you again, do not place your loyalty upon me as your pastor. Now, let me give a little bit of an asterisk to that statement. I hope and pray with all my heart that you trust me as your pastor. I hope and pray with all my heart that you have found me to be a man of honor, of integrity, and to the best of my ability, accuracy. But even in the message this morning, I had to correct a little bit of how I have portrayed this passage. I have a correction from Sunday school that I need to to give you all. Next week in Sunday school, I'll give you a correction to something I said this morning. There are corrections that I have to make. See, because I'm a man. This morning in my announcements, I said that this was October instead of September. See, because I make mistakes. And if you are resting in Pastor Wickler, and if you are trusting in Pastor Wickler, and if your loyalty is upon Pastor Wickler, then you will be disappointed. I will disappoint you. It's going to happen. But, if your loyalty rests on God and His Word, and you are upholding the man of God who God has chosen to lead the church and you are giving him the respect that is due according to the word of God, to the man of God, and you are listening to him and you are uh, um, obeying the word of God as it's preached through him, but your loyalty is on the word of God itself, see, then the church will remain strong. You will never be disappointed because God's word will never disappoint. You will never be disappointed because God does not disappoint. Psalm 119.105 says this, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. See, it is the word of God that guides every step, our every move, our every breath. The psalmist did not say, Thy high priests are a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The psalmist did not say, Thy traditions are a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. The psalmist said, Thy word is the light. Thy word is the lamp. It is the word of God that illuminates the next step. And as long as we are trusting in the word of God to illuminate our steps, not only will we not be disappointed as we're taking step after step after step after step, we won't be disappointed, but we also won't falter. Because His Word is a lamp. And it is illuminating those steps. Step after step after step. And so we won't be disappointed, nor will we falter when we are resting our loyalty upon the Word of God. So church, the Scriptures say, don't glory in men of the ministry, glory in God alone. He says whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours. And ye are Christ's. And Christ is God's. All things are under Christ. And Christ has willingly submitted Himself to the Father. 
And so as we, as a body of believers, are resting in the Word of God and conforming ourselves to the mind of Christ, that's come up a lot. We are therefore conforming ourselves to the expectation of God and we please God. And those elements of biblical decision making as we considered them this morning will all come into focus as we are allowing God's Word to guide, allowing God's Word to lead. So we come to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Next week will be a two-part sermon in John and then we'll continue in 1 Corinthians 4. But don't lose sight of what Paul has been saying here and warning about ministers because now he's about to turn his thoughts inward. And he's about to apply these truths using being very, very bold here, very dramatic, and that he's going to use these truths to speak directly of his ministry and the ministry of Apollos and even the ministry of Barnabas uh, as he continues through the book. And that will be um, very interesting for us as we continue to learn. Let's close in a word of prayer.